What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Core Consult RX podcast. I think this is episode 188 today. Oof. Inching closer. I know. To the 200 mark. We need a plan. Can't, we still haven't come up with a plan, guys. We've been talking about it for 15 episodes now. 88 episodes ago, we had the um, famous Dr. Words. Yeah, we did. For episode 100. We probably just need to call him up and get him on here again because we're running out of time. I know. <laughs> you yeah. to book him the day of. Well, yeah, he, he's busy. He is very busy. We need to book him ahead of time, and we do not do well with booking ahead of time. Ever. Do yeah. we? No, we really don't. It's not one of our fortes here at Core Consult uh, headquarters. <laughs> headquarters. Whatever we call this place. <laughs> uh, so, today's episode, a um, couple things. One, it is a somewhat i don't want to say a repeat topic but we did do this one uh you know fall of 2021 um but we're going to kind of go through it again probably a little bit more detail uh, because this is a uh, episode that is going to be acpe accredited thanks to our friends at freece.com so if you are a member of their website and you're an unlimited member so you have access to all of their contents you also get access to all of our accredited podcast episodes and uh and, and as well as future episodes and so just like before um hopefully you guys have seen some of these before so you kind of know the drill by now but um you will get a uh, code which in this particular case is going to be dmard d-m-a-r-d uh, all capital letters um to use as a password to get into the post activity test pass that and you will receive your credit don't pass that and you will have to try try again um and uh if you are not a freece.com member um and you're still listening to the podcast, get your credit. You got to join their, their their website. They got some great content. Um, obviously, the podcast episodes we do with them, but then also all their monographs and live events and all kinds of fun stuff. Um, check that out. And there's also a uh, discount code in our show notes, so make sure you check that out. And the, the link to their website to see their whole podcast catalog for the unlimited members is also going to be in the show notes. So big thanks to them for continuing to partner with, with us. Yeah, I feel like they could do so much better, but they keep they keep throwing us a bone. For some we, reason, we, we love them for it. No, it's been it's been fun. So I hope you guys are enjoying it too. But I think this will be a good one. I think since I already said the password to the today's episode, I'm thinking you guys are at least you know kind of assuming what we're going to be talking about. Some sort of a rheumatoid condition. Yeah, is, does that does that term pop up anywhere else? Yeah, another rheumatoid. Other rheumatoid. Any rheumatoid thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're talking specifically arthritis. Yes. Rheumatoid arthritis. R-A. Not osteo. No. R-A. And we will discuss some differences. We just might. We just might. So that you can tell the difference. <laughs> if you stay tuned. They are different. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, there was an updated guideline last year, mm-hmm. 2021. Previous to that, the most recent update to the guidelines was 2015. Um, for those of you who are familiar, there's obviously... New biologic medications coming out for all sorts of uh, disease states frequently, especially in the last five, six years. So even since that, um, even since that uh, update in the guideline, new drugs come out. So we're going to go over everything as best we can to cover it all, um, but we'll start with the basics, right? Mm-hmm. So rheumatoid arthritis, um, different than osteo, like he said, this is a chronic progressive autoimmune disorder primarily affects the joints. Um, There's definitely a complex interaction between genes and environment, so um, as to what the cause is, um, leading to a breakdown of immune tolerance and synovial inflammation, and that's what's going to affect those joints. Um, The genome clearly plays a role in susceptibility and severity. Um, That seems to be very clear. There's over 100 different gene polymorphisms associated with rheumatoid arthritis, 
Uh, and it is, yes, it's an autoimmune disorder. And, and if you're kind of thinking along the lines of, you know, the antigen presenting cell, the, so the, the B cells are activated B cells known as plasma cells, um, you know, those are kind of what are kicking off those, um, in, in resulting those autoantibodies. And uh, it's like Cole said, it's kind of, it's basically attacking your own bone, you know, matrix and uh, breaking down um, your, your, your causing bone destruction. Um, and so as far as, you know, this condition, obviously there's lots of other rheumatoid type conditions and autoimmune type conditions. Um, but it, because it is arthritis, you know, the signs and symptoms are going to be, some of them are going to be common with other forms of, uh, of, of arthritis, such as osteo, but there's also some very stark differences. Um, so you will get some pain and stiffness, obviously, in the joints. Um, the stiffness in the joints is going to happen especially uh, noticeably in the morning. Um, and the involved joints are usually hands, wrists, feet, um, and you, there's going to be some potential tenderness, warmth, um, swelling in the affected joint. Um, and there's usually symmetrical distribution, um, also prolonged morning stiffness. Um, but persistent fatigue is another kind of big uh, red flag when it comes to the, the rheumatoid conditions. Um, and then, you know, overall, like having weak muscle tone and then uh, even rheumatoid nodules, which is uh, basically like local swelling uh, that can happen uh, in the heart or in the lung as well. Um, so we'll, like Cole said, we'll compare and contrast them, uh, uh, in just a little bit, but those are some of the kind of very common and classic signs of, of RA. Yeah. And I did want to mention, um, cause I had a little history of rheumatoid oh, arthritis. You always do. Because it's been around for a long time, obviously. Um, it's been affecting people for, I don't know, I saw the 1500s. It was first described in the 1800s. And if you watch like an old show, uh, that was based in the 19th, 20th, early 20th century. You might hear people refer to rheumatism, which uh, could have been referring to multiple things, um, like gout and things like that, because it was hard to delineate. Um, but rheumatoid arthritis was first acknowledged by modern medicine in a dissertation by Augustine Jacob Landre Babu. That is too many names. It's a lot. And I don't know if I pronounced it correctly. In the year 1800, that was the first time they described rheumatoid arthritis did it how did he end up doing the the differential diagnosis between that and things like gout did, did you look into that any deeper no I just got dig, his name didn't dig too deep mm. but well, i did, did I, I basically wanted to know what encompassed rheumatism and that's where i found it anything yeah anything they couldn't explain osteoarthritis they might have even called rheumatism I'm if sure. they didn't know yeah well they also thought it was probably a good idea to like just get some of the bad blood out of you when you were sick yeah just let it out yeah just let it on out let the blood let the blood yeah we know now we don't it's not ideal it kills people it, it does in fact actually lower your hemoglobin so there are some risk factors to help us predict who might be more susceptible to rheumatoid arthritis it usually hits between the ages of 25 to 50 but elderly patients can definitely develop it uh, more common in men than women about a three to one ratio Family history, so we talked about the genetic component is going to be a big risk factor, as well as smoking and coffee. I feel like I'm always seeing a different article about how beneficial coffee is, mm -hmm. but a lot of the topics that we do, coffee pops up as a risk factor. What do you think that's about? I don't know. I think it has to do with more when we're dealing with like inflammation and... Yeah, things like that that, it, that right. it's a negative aspect versus like the cardiovascular health yeah. and the wakefulness and all that kind of stuff. If you, That's a good point. I'm, I guess I'm mostly thinking about it with like UC and Crohn's and yeah. peptic ulcer disease and things things of the GI tract or that are related to inflammatory mediators. Whereas the cardiovascular stuff is where it's, it's a different ball game. 
whole different ball game. Yeah, it looks like coffee is actually pretty good for you. You don't drink coffee. Uh, some. I actually had coffee this morning, believe it or not, for the first time in a long time. So like on a regular morning, nah. what, what is your caffeine? Uh, usually a f- uh, sugar-free monster. Yeah, okay. I don't drink coffee on a morning. It's also my my drink of choice right now. It's, it's your 12 all, hours later. It's your all-day drink. <laughs> it's, my, really, it's really good at any hour. No, I also do not drink coffee in the morning for my caffeine. I do, I do enjoy huh? Starbucks. This is like, I know Starbucks is not real cool coffee, even though it's expensive. Prices, if it is such, um, I like some of the Starbucks coffees. No. I'll get those if I'm out and about. Yeah, I'll enjoy. I mean, I'll enjoy the ones, especially the ones that taste like milkshake or good iced coffee, <laughs> caramel iced coffee. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can do that. It's basically, not so much coffee as it is a milkshake. At that oh, point. Yeah, a yeah, coffee yeah, no. flavored milkshake. It's cool. Um, yeah, no, I, I wonder what it. that says about us that neither of us are daily. Co- you know that like the most of the world is daily coffee drinkers. Mm-hmm. We don't conform, but we're here with a podcast, and they don't have one. And they don't have one. So if you want to have a podcast, kids, don't drink. I'm just kidding. I have no problem drinking coffee. It's pretty good. I just don't like them. I'm too. You know what it really is? It's I'm too lazy to make it. Well, you know what it is for me. Mm. It just it makes my stomach not feel good in the morning. Mm. Well, it, because I used to not eat breakfast for years. That ago. might be gross. I didn't eat breakfast, and uh, yeah, it just didn't sit well. So I didn't yeah. drink coffee. Shitty breakfast, Cole. Yeah. <laughs> I do now. Oh, that's good. All right. So Fruit Loops. we've all grown. Fruit Loops is not breakfast. Anyways, he's a diabetes educator, folks. Eating Fruit Loops. Ugh, unbelievable. Total hypocrite. Um, so some of the labs that uh, are going to be important to get on a patient who you're doing an initial workup um, for rheumatoid arthritis, um, things like the rheumatoid factor assay or the RF assay. Um, the RF test shows the presence of the RF antibody in the blood, uh, which can be sometimes seen in people with RA, uh, but it's, it's only about 70% of patients who have rheumatoid arthritis actually test positive for that antibody. Um, there's also the anti-citrullinated peptide antibody or ACPA, um, which is a, an enzyme-linked um, immunosorbent assayer or ELISA um, for antibodies against uh, cyclic citrullinated peptides or CCP. Um, those are going to be the most commonly uh, used assays to attain a, an ACPA. And this is basically going to be helpful when we're looking at detecting early stage arthritis. Um, also, some of our other you know, inflammatory things that we typically think about, like our erythrocyte sedimentation rate, um, this is going to um, kind of show the presence of overall inflammation in the body um, and the activity of the disease itself. Um, anti-nuclear uh, antibody, or ANA, is a very common um, lab that we also draw, um, and, and also kind of points to some, some sort of a, it's not specific for rheumatoid arthritis, but um, shows inflammation and some kind of a rheumatoid thing potentially going on. Um, C-reactive protein test, or CRP, uh, is an, a, an acute phase protein that mm-hmm. um, increases uh, with a- acute inflammation. Um, even even uh, one lab that can be kind of um, overlooked a lot of times, but something that I think is, is still a good, easy one to get is a ferritin level. Yeah. So we typically think of oh, looking for low ferritin if we're looking for iron deficiency anemia, but right. high ferritin level does indicate inflammation. Mm-hmm. And so that can be something that, you know, also, especially when there's fatigue and you're thinking, you know, to anemia, and then all of a sudden you get a ferritin level that's really high, might want to make you recheck and see if there's anything else going on. Think twice. Think, yeah. I coined that phrase just now. Cole just came up with that right in front of everybody. Live. Think, only record and re- well, recorded. Think we live. can trademark that? No. Um, we don't, we're, we lack the legal Good. Team. So that's diagnostic. Diagnosis. Diagnosis. Things to diagnose. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we, you would want to distinguish um, rheumatoid arthritis from osteoarthritis. So osteoarthritis, as far as its onset, it's not going to happen subtly. 
uh, suddenly, it's insidious, it's over many years. RA is going to be gradual or sudden, so it can't happen suddenly, sometimes weeks to months. Um, as far as how long they're stiff, especially when uh, rest, they've been at rest, for instance, with osteoarthritis, they're stiff for a few minutes. Uh, it's localized, but short gelling. Um, they might describe it as a gelling after a prolonged rest. Duration of stiffness for RA, at least an hour, often longer than that, so a longer uh, time of stiffness. It's most pronounced after rest. Um, the type of pain or when they have pain with osteoarthritis in motion because they're going to uh, have a loss of that cartilage. It might be bone on bone. So on motion, they're going to have pain with prolonged activity, and it's relieved when they're resting. With rheumatoid arthritis, even at rest, they can have pain. It might even disturb their sleep. Um, as far as fatigue, might kind of mention that. With osteoarthritis, it's not autoimmune. It's just localized to those specific areas. Um, so fatigue would be unusual. With rheumatoid arthritis, uh, fatigue is often significant or severe um, with onset four to five hours after uh, waking up. Um, it can also um, cause tenderness, which is very common in osteoarthritis um, at the aff affected joint. Um, rheumatoid arthritis also almost always has tenderness, and that's the most sensitive indicator for inflammation. Um, swelling, osteoarthritis may have a fusion that's common. Um, they don't really have much synovial reaction, and then they rarely have swelling. With rheumatoid arthritis, you'd have fusiform, soft tissue enlargement. A fusion is common um, as well, um, but you have synovial proliferation and thickening. It's often symmetric between joints, and you can also have characteristic rheumatoid nodules. Um, there's not usually much heat or urethema with osteoarthritis, but there's a little bit with RA. Um, and then there could be joint enlargement. You probably have seen that in, in these patients. Um, in osteoarthritis, it's mild and it's usually firm in consistency. Um, the joint enlargement would be uh, more moderate to severe in a rheumatoid arthritis patient. And, and also the location of the joints that are affected. So we already kind of mentioned with rheumatoid, it's the feet and hands. Um, obviously with osteo, um, we typically will see the, the hands as well, but we also kind of think knees and hips and some of the bigger joints. Um, so that's, you know, it, it, not that rheumatoid arthritis can't happen in the hips and knees, but it's just um, going to be more uh, uncommon in those cases, especially in the hip. The closer you kind of get to uh, the uh, the spinal cord, if you will, the uh, you're going to get um, less common, you know, effects of rheumatoid, um, where we see it pretty commonly with osteo. Um, yep. so as far as, you know, kind of assessing, um, you know, the, I guess the, the severity, um, and, and looking at, you know, how we would kind of quantify the patient's, you know, baseline and then their progress or worsening improvement and, you know, kind of being able to follow that. There's a few different, um, scoring systems that are available. So there's several assessment tools, um, and, and all of these can be potentially utilized. You know, there's, there's going to be some that are going to be used in certain clinical trials and others in, you know, that are used in others. But, uh, for example, we have like the clinical di clinical disease activity index. Um, and we have, uh, the disease activity score, which is the DAS 28. Um, we have the, um, the patient activity scale, uh, or the PAS, 
Um, the routine assessment of patient index data three or the rapid three is another way for that. But basically what they're getting at with these scales and they're all, they all have different scales. Like, you know, for example, the, the clinical disease activity index is zero to 76 that you can score. Whereas the disease activity score, the, the DSS 20, DAS 28 is only zero to 9.4. So it's very different scoring systems. So you have to make sure you're looking at the scale that's appropriate, but you're looking for um, the breakdown of uh, high disease activity, moderate disease, low disease, or remission. And uh, that differentiation between low disease and remission, I think, is going to be kind of an important thing to, that we'll bring back up um, yeah. in regards to the new the new guidelines. No talk about that now? Hey, sure. Well, so one of the updates with the new guidelines... Um, one <laughs> I was of the, trying to do another cliffhanger. One few, well, we could have, yeah. but I didn't know if it would come, Missed opportunity. I didn't know if it'd come up naturally again. Yeah, it's, it came up so naturally. We'd have to force it in, you know? Yeah, okay. Now cool. it's natural. Keep going. Now it's, it's very natural. natural. And it wasn't. it's not awkward or anything. This is perfect. Right, yeah. Everyone's very It's happening very at the focused. exact perfect time where <laughs> we wouldn't have to go off track or anything. It would, yeah. it would just happen right here. Right, there you go. Perfect. Okay, tell us. Yes. So the updated guidelines uh, mention uh, a treat-to-target approach with treating these patients. Um historically or traditionally they say usually it would be more of a uh, physician patient conversation about how they felt like their disease was progressing or improving um, and that would help determine whether they needed to um, escalate their therapy and that sort of thing treat to target is uh, more referencing these um, severity indexes and using one of these evidence-based severity indexes to tell you to, for them to fill out or for you to score and, and to, to say exactly where they're at with that and then tailor their treatment towards accordingly. that accordingly uh, to target a low disease activity and not necessarily remission like Mike mentioned because um, that's not always possible. Uh, that can be discouraging to patients mm -hmm. if it's not feasible. Um, so targeting treat to target of a low disease activity based on one of these severity indexes. And I, f I think this kind of this made me think of like the, the when we were talking about opioids and like pain management. Like one of the things that you'll hear people kind of say when we're talking about pain management is, you know, telling like kind of being realistic with expectations for a patient. Like patients shouldn't be under the impression that like I'm just not going to feel pain ever. Like and being kind of because if that's the the goal, they're never going to get there, and they're right. just going to have to keep increasing therapy and whatnot. So being realistic, like, hey, we're going to make you as comfortable as we can. It's right. still not going to be perfect, um, but you have a disease, and we have to just do our best with it. But right. giving them realistic expectations, so you're not getting the discouragement, like you like you said, functional but not yeah necessarily pain free, not right, necessarily right. cured, right. right. Yeah. I mean, I think, in, you know, and, and, as you, and that's one of the reasons why they like that target to treat, because as people are getting older, you're going to have aches and pains. Right. And just, you know, natural course of life. It's all about and, setting expectations, which I think, like you said, is important yeah. with many disease states, yeah. because uh, if you shoot for low severity and they achieve remission, yay. People like a specific goal, yeah. like a number goal yes. to reach. So that's you know achievable. Where you're, yeah. Just like with weight loss, right? Yeah, just lose weight. Yeah, just people, lose weight. We say that to patients all the time. It's right. like, oh, lose weight or uh, exercise. Right. Okay, and then what will that do? Well, I... Do, after a certain point, do I just have a guy hand me a sack of money like <laughs> that? Like, but that's that's why, like, with, like, blood pressures, I've actually shown people that they get yeah. low because I think it gets that buy-in. It does. The why. It's what you need. You need it. I'm always asking why. Probably, <laughs> probably um, to a very annoying extent at work, but... Why we do it this way? That's stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I question too much. Usually, yeah. just to myself. Dude, but, but the thing is, supervisors love that. They love it when you question them. Everything, <laughs> and you go, "Why are you doing it that way?" That seems out. It seems pretty archaic. But okay, what do I know? Yeah. Just, um, kidding. just kidding. Bosses are listening. Okay. 
So do you want to talk about treatment? I guess we might as well talk about some treatment options. Might as well do some drugs because we are a pharmacotherapy podcast. We are. So it might be beneficial. DMARDS? Um, yeah. Kind of the, the whole uh, podcast uh, password for this episode? It sure is without the S. Not the S, yeah. DMARD. DMARD. Very yeah. important. We had to do clarify not put that. the S. We did have to double check before we started recording. Have we even said what that means? Uh, well, I'll tell you right now, Cole. It is disease modifying anti rheumatic drugs. Or drug if you're doing the. No, we're doing drugs because we're going to talk about multiple yes. ones. Just but don't do that for the password. password. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Now um, they're, they're going to get confused. So uh, this, the guidelines changed a little bit around. Um, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later. I will give you a cliffhanger for that. But around um, the recommendation in certain disease severity with what to start or what not to start, um, patients with symptomatic RA should be started on a DMAR. So that's pretty much accepted. Um, they have various mechanisms of action that can slow the disease process and help prevent further joint damage. Um, uh, like we said, we would love to have remission, but ultimately shooting for low disease activity is probably a more realistic goal. Um, the guidelines have kind of updated um, about bridging. So bridging is usually um, where you would start a low-dose steroid for a period of time while the DMARD um, takes effect. It can take a while, six weeks or, or however long. Um, so you would use a, a steroid to bridge to help with the um, uh, the symptoms until the DMARD kicks in. Um, th- the recommendation was generally to use the lowest effective dose for the shortest time possible, and then NSAIDs were not as effective. So the, the new guideline actually has a, it's not a strong level of recommendation, but it's a conditional recommendation to avoid using low-dose prednisone um, as a bridge. And they say because for the most part, patients uh, in many cases will continue on it longer than you wanted them to. Yeah. Um, and so just stay on it. The, if you're following it and you use the lowest effective dose for the shortest time possible, then that's still appropriate. It's just to make a blanket recommendation to do this for everybody. They just say that a lot of people end up on the low-dose steroids for a long time, and we all know what kind of issues can come from that over time. I literally had a patient that this happened to on this, this past Wednesday and where their yep. rheumatologist left them on prednisone, just continued it. I guess the MA just kept <laughs> refilling it. Yep. Patient said, and then they ended up getting uh, an injection in the joint as well so now their a1c is like yeah out of control all over the place oops so yeah yeah i I would take it to for me i would take it patient to patient and you also have to be aware of how your your practice is as far as are you going to make a hard line about about Mm -hmm. after a certain period of time no more refills on this and yeah whatever i definitely think it should have at least some kind of an idea of a stop date when it comes to steroids you just don't want to leave them on it in perpetuity Solid. I'm sure I use that word correctly. I feel like, and maybe. Um, so I, I do think it's important too, to clarify because DMARDS is a term that kind of is, a, is an umbrella term, if you will. Um, there are sort of like subcategories of that term. And really, we when we classically think of DMARDS, we're thinking of um, what they would call like CS DMARDS, which is like conventional uh, synthetic DMARDS, um, which is like our methotrexates and our the ones drugs that we're about to talk about. Um, then we also have our biologic DMARDS, um, and then we have our targeted synthetic DMARDS, like the Zeljans and things like that. Um, so they are all technically... DMARDs, but they are kind of subcategorized you know, in that way as well. So I don't. In wanna... all instances, they modify the disease activity yeah. and their anti-rheumatic drugs. I feel like I, I'm I'm very 
uh, guilty of like using DMARDs only for methotrexate yeah. and then calling them biologics for the TNF-alpha. I, I feel like everybody does that. Yeah. Which, I mean, it gets the point across, but technically. But then the students or whoever sees the algorithm on right. that thing, and they're like, they oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Yes. So that's why that's what that is. So. Yes. Not just a trivia fact. Not just trivia It's fact. to help It's people. to help. Because that's what we do. We, we serve. <laughs> well, we yeah. Pr- we protect and serve. We're like police officers. <laughs> But just with a podcast. Um, okay, so methotrexate. Let's start there because that's that is our our golden ticket when it comes to our our conventional DMARD. Um, we have a few others that we'll mention, but the guidelines are very specific about liking methotrexate, especially in the case of like moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis. That's typically what we're starting off with. Um, so mechanistically, uh, it is a folate anti-metabolite that is uh, inhibiting DNA synthesis, synthesis, repair, cellular replication, and uh, it's also uh, inhibiting dihydrofolate reductase. Uh, and so uh, folate supplementation does end up being a factor um, that we need to um, consider when we have a patient on long-term methotrexate. Um, dosing wise, um, this is another kind of thing the guidelines did specify. Um, the dosing can be kind of in a range of 7.5 to 30 milligrams once weekly. Um, it does come as a oral tablet, a sub Q injection, or even an IM typically sub Q is what you would see. Um, the guidelines do want patients starting out on oral therapy, ideally over sub Q, which is kind of backwards from the GI standpoint yeah. it's a little interesting um i guess because the oral being gi you won't want don't want that so i guess that makes sense i answered yeah. my own stupid question <laughs> idiot <laughs> what we do here we answer <laughs> yeah, our yeah, just answer questions. stupid questions that we ask um but uh the other thing is they over the first four to six weeks they want you to try the is your best and you know i'm assuming the patient can tolerate to get to at least 15 milligrams um for the weekly dose uh, in that first, you know, period of time. Um, and so if it's taking longer than that, maybe assessing why the patient, um, is having you know, side effects or what the, maybe the case, you know, case by case situation is, um, maybe increasing folate, uh, supplementation, things like that. Um, but methotrexate is, uh, long-term can be um, known to cause hepatotoxicity, myelosuppression, uh, mucocystitis. And so it's definitely not a benign drug. It's nowhere near as, as intense as far as the monitoring goes with the liver function and all that. I mean, they used to biopsy people after a certain amount of time for yeah. everybody. So it, it definitely relaxed a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it is still something that we need to consider. You know, if you have a patient who's drinking heavily or they have hepatitis C or B or, you know, whatever else is going on, um, it would be something you have to at least keep in mind. Right. Uh, it's also contraindicated for pregnancy. So if that's on, you know, your mind and uh, you have a patient who's thinking about pregnancy, um, you know, we definitely got to uh, go stay away from this one in particular. Um, adverse effects that are, you know, much more common than a lot of patients will deal with. The, the GI upsets, a nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Um, it can cause an, an increase in LFTs, even if it doesn't lead to hepatotoxicity. Um, there are cases uh, where it can lead to alopecia um, and photosensitivity as well. Um, so we want to at least check LFTs at baseline. And then for the first three months, we're checking a little bit more frequently, you know, every two to four weeks or so. Um, and then uh, if we have a dose increase, then we're going to 
check more frequently and continue to check more frequently. Or if we've stabilized their dose, then it's going to every eight to 12 weeks for three to six months and then less frequently at the clinician's discretion. Yeah. Um, but do make sure that we're testing for hep B and hep C you know, as well as tuberculosis prior to, to starting. Yes. And that's going to be a general theme. Yeah. For all these really. Yeah. And it's important for in this instance, because Mike mentioned the biopsies, you don't biopsy liver biopsy everybody. Um, only in certain situations at your discretion. Uh, maybe like Mike said, history of excessive alcohol use, ongoing Hep B or Hep C infection, um, or recurrent elevation in um, uh, the uh, liver enzymes. Specifically, aspartate uh, aminotransferase. Yes, specifically aspartate aminotransferase. Um, uh, it's folate, so it's a folate antimetabolite. So folate can be given to decrease certain issues, hematologic, GI, hepatic adverse effects. It's usually given um, either two different ways. Five milligrams once a week on the day after they take the methotrexate. Remember that that's once weekly as well. Or you alter, or you give one milligram once a day on days you don't take methotrexate. So six days a week. Um, the one milligram tablets are only available as prescription. Yes. Don't tell them to get it over the counter because they, I think it's what, 0.4 and then 0.8 if it's birth con- or um, prenatal? Pre- prenatal is 0.8. But just standalone, I think, four. So, yeah. so make so sure they get in the right, you know, the right dose. Two and a half. Which is a pain. Just give them a just prescription. A pain. And you got to know those things are tiny. How you split yeah. those things? Just pill cutter, probably. I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> if, if I had to. I was going to use my canines. <laughs> teeth. Not my dogs. My oh, teeth. that's good. Yeah. I feel like that would be get gross really quick. These pills are dissolving via the canine saliva. I was trying to think of what the tooth beside the front tooth was. What is that? I don't know. An incisor? Maybe. It sounds right. I think that's it. I think it is. It just came to me. You're like a dentist. Might as well be. You're like a dentist, basically. (laughs) Basically a dentist. (laughs) Tell everyone. Cole's a dentist now. So... That's our main uh, DMARD. That's a you know a conventional DMARD. Um, that's going to be utilized more so than the other ones we're about to talk about. But we'll still touch on these other ones because you will still see them in, in patients. So leflunamide um, is another uh, conventional DMARD that it basically works by in, inhibiting um, pyrimidine synthesis, uh, resulting in anti-proliferative and anti-inflammatory effects. Um, it has a box warning for embryo-fetal toxicity as well as hepatotoxicity as well. Um, if a female patient uh, is going to start this, they must have a negative pregnancy test prior, um, as well as uh, ensure that they're using two forms of contraception during treatment. The issue is if, a, if pregnancy is desired, technically speaking, we are supposed to uh, wait two years after discontinuing this medication uh, unless we can get undetectable levels reached. Um, or we do have another method where we can use accelerated drug elimination procedure. Freaking. Sorry, the dogs are barking, guys. They're part of the podcast. It's your like, feet are hurting? No, no, no. I said, sorry, the dogs are barking. Your feet are hurting? My feet are fine. Okay. I don't know what my feet have to do with this. <laughs> it's, a southern, it's a southern colloquialism. Is it? My dogs are, my dogs are barking. Oh. It's from a movie from a long time ago. I don't like, like that. The 50s well, you're, making us, you're making Southern... You're just playing into <laughs> the stereotype of the Southern people. We don't talk like that. We're, yeah. we're smart. Everyone, everyone else from around the country is like, uh, y'all have really bad accents. I just said y'all. See, I mean, we... Yeah, yeah. we, we probably, say y'all. That's fine. We do. We is it fine, the though? North and say pop instead of soda? I'll tell you what. Get out of here with that. I have a couple students that keep saying that. I'm like, stop saying pop. It's driving me crazy. I know. Well, neither of us are Southern enough to call it Coke. To call everything Coke, are we? I call. I just say soda. I say soda too. Yeah. But the real Southern people just call any cap- <laughs> anything any, Coke. I don't care what the brand is. Any Coke. carbonated beverage would be a Coke. Right? Yeah. Well, you know what they say. Yes. Um, 
I what do know. they say? I don't know. <laughs> Some stuff. Um, but, uh, okay, so pay, back to uh, Luminide. Um, so LFTs also need to be uh, checked um, and monitored you know, monthly for the first six months, and then we can kind of relax a little bit after that. Uh, also, some serious skin infections, including Stephen Johnson's, um, not infection, I'm sorry, reaction is what I meant to say. No, so just, I don't want you guys to get confused that. So Stephen Johnson's uh, can also lead to peripheral neuropathy and uh, can also elevate blood pressure as well. Um, so a lot of different things we need to keep in mind. Um, can also increase the risk of respiratory infections, GI effects, rashes, headaches, yada, yada, yada. It goes on and on. So... And if you want a ton of side effects, this is the drug for you. There's plenty of side effects associated there with, with that pregnancy thing. But if you needed to do the accelerated drug elimination, there we are have couple, an option. We have a couple options. Um, <laughs> cholesteramine, 8 grams, 3 times a day for 11 days, or activated charcoal suspension, 50 milligrams every 12 hours for 11 days. Activated charcoal suspension. You basically have to pretend that you're, you've given yourself an overdose. Of or or just this drug maybe, and then, <laughs> many drugs I guess any drug and then, yeah you just give you activated charcoal and you're like I'm self treating my toxicity I just can't believe it hangs out for two years it's crazy cholestyramine would be my choice because it looks like orange juice looks tasty I don't know it always sounds I've never tasted it it's probably disgusting well they have multiple flavors now do they yeah because I had a guy who like did not do the orange mm. and turns out there's like four other flavors what I've only seen orange. I'm pretty positive I, re- I recall this. It was m- multiple years ago, but I had to special okay, so order this. That's like a 50-50 chance that that's accurate. I had to special order this this certain flavor for him, and mm-hmm. then we would accidentally, of course, occasionally somebody filling in would dispense the orange, and then he'd bring mm-hmm. it back, and I'd have to special order the cherry or whatever it was. I can't remember. That, I think it was a clear. It was like a... It was like... I think there is a... Clear? I think there is a... Um, flavorless. Hmm. I'm making stuff we, up. We do a lot of thinking and, <laughs> and more so just kind of pondering in this podcast. Somebody we, knows. Somebody knows that there are there. there are different flavors. Yeah, I feel like you just use a lot of crystal light or like Mio and just really overpower the flavor if you needed to. Well, versus he, this dude did not do the orange. He was not about the orange. I would say like, sorry, buddy. Except that somehow he knew that there were other flavors out there, so he had me special order. Yeah, yeah. No, and he's, he's bringing it back. Could you imagine bringing the I can't do orange. Oh yeah, hate it. Well, we I were would. we were a customer service oriented pharmacy, so I would have been like, we "Hey, did you're what we needed to do." This is what I said. I would have been like, "You're an adult man, right? Here you go. Here's your orange." I'm just kidding. I wouldn't have said that, folks. So um, the next CSD mard is sulfazalazine. Uh, it's a pro drug. It's cleaved by bacteria in the colon into sulfapyridine and five amino salicylic acid. Uh, we think the sulfapyridine moiety is responsible for its anti rheumatic properties, though the exact mechanism isn't known. Um, but because of that sulfa moiety, it does have some contraindications. A um, anaphylactic sulfa allergy would be one, or a, a salicylate allergy because it has 5-aminosalicylic acid in it. Um, also, a GI or GU obstruction would be contraindications. Be aware that this can also cause Stevens-Johnson syndrome, uh, severely affect the liver, cause hepatic failure in, in certain instances, as well as pulmonary fibrosis. Um, more common adverse effects, headache, possible rash, um, anorexia, dyspepsia, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and folate uh, deficiency. You want to monitor CBC, monitor L- uh, LFTs at baseline, and then every other week for three months, monthly for three months, and then once every three months. And this is another of those drugs. I feel like we talk about one every episode now mm-hmm. that can dis- that can um, discolor the skin or urine, yellow, orange. Did we bring this up last time? Because we talked about uh, ulcerative colitis. 
We brought uh, it up. We brought it up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yellow orange coloration of the skin or urine. Yeah. And last but not least, our le- probably least effective yeah. conventional DMR. Least effective, but so last but and least, but least side, side effects. effects. Yeah, least side effects. Not yeah. side effect free, of course. Except, but yeah, least side effects. Unless you're really worried about your eyesight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, unless you want to see. Yeah. If you want to see, this might not be. You like that. being able to see. Yeah. If you could take it or leave it, then this though is at the same time, one. well, we'll get to it. But the monitoring to me is lax for the concern that is true you know what i'm saying yeah, like yeah, yeah. yeah just once every five years it's like whoop, okay i thought well, it was a little more important than that what if i lose my eyesight at four and a half years I know. that's gonna be so ridiculous i know hydroxychloroquine so you guys are like what the heck drug are they talking about hydroxychloroquine is where we're getting at you guys probably all remember this because that was like one of the first things they all thought was going to cure covid and then it was just like a mad rush on hydroxychloroquine let's all stockpile it and that way no one everyone with rheumatoid arthritis was like uh i remember we were having to we were having to limit quantities that we yeah. were dispensing and if if it wasn't for something like this then like we could only dispense a certain amount it was man i forget about all that yeah. stuff feels like a long time ago now I'm trying to black it out of my memory but this is basically inhibiting the locomotion of neutrophils um, in the, the chemotaxis of its eosinophils. Um, so it, it also uh, impairs the complement-dependent antigen-antibody reactions. Uh, so some warnings to kind of be aware of, like we already mentioned, as far as the eye goes, the retinopathy, um, and, and as well as macular pigment changes. Um, and then it can also lead to neuromuscular weakness, cardiomyopathy, bone marrow suppression. Um, so, for example, anemia, leukopenia, thrombocytopenia. Uh, and so some pretty serious adverse effects, which is why we just didn't want people taking it like crazy and until we knew that it uh, actually it was effective. Um, adverse effects uh, that are very common would be the GI effects, abdominal pain, rash, pigmentation changes of the skin and hair. Um, that one's a little bit more rare, but um, the GI stuff and, and skin stuff definitely. Um, so monitoring the, the CBCs as well as the LFTs at baseline, and then kind of periodically. You don't have to be as rigorous in testing as you do with the others. Um, but the uh, the retinal damage that could uh, potentially occur can, in some cases, be irreversible. So that's kind of like one of those things where what Cole was talking about. It seems a little bit like a scary side effect that yeah. we don't actually monitor for that closely. But for patients with risk factors for developing retinal damage so like low body weight if they have some sort of renal or hepatic impairment um, those patients need ophthalmological ophthalmological exams um, you know annually uh, while they're on treatment if patients don't have those risk factors and you're like nah it'd probably be fine um, ophthalmic examination should be completed within the first five years of starting hydroxychloroquine and then repeated annually so then they get a little bit more Oh, they do repeat yeah, they annually. Do repeat annually. Okay. Yeah, but still, that first five. I guess it's yeah, only, it's like, I would probably be like, okay, how about two years, and I'll just I know. get it. I'd five get ahead and get years. I do my five years, and then why is it annually after five years? I would imagine because the data shows it happens at like year seven. I suppose. I suppose. I'm, I'm very logical, Cole. You got you to learn that about <laughs> Mike. Me. Is a logic oriented man. <laughs> Always. He always goes logic. Whenever he, whenever he says, "Should I spend money on this?" He only uses logic. To and I decide. say yes because <laughs> the podcast, and we're trying, we got to get the people what they want. Should I spend money on this grass thing that I don't need? The answer is yes. I should spend money on this grass. Um, okay. Yes. So I, it's uh, often used if it's used in mild RA. Um, uh, can be used by itself or as an adjuvant in combination DMAR therapy and more progressive disease. Uh, it, this just like the others can take a while to start working. It take, can be delayed up to six weeks. Um, it's only considered a therapeutic failure if it's been six months of therapy without a response. 
Um, and kind of like we mentioned, the main advantage, even though it has its risks, um, is the lack of myelosuppressive effects, hepatic issues, renal toxicities that are associated with the other DMARDs. And we'll kind of like summarize all this data as far as where the, the therapy yeah. goes. But we typically save this for like very mild cases, like you were saying, Cole. So, yeah. um, you're not going to see this too often unless the patient's like, you know, kind of, kind of just have an issue. I mean, we had a fair amount of people on it, but... Um, or at least according to the guidelines, I Right, right, say. right. We had more people on methotrexate. There's yeah. just a lot of people have rheumatoid arthritis. So, yeah. Or rheumatoid issues. I yeah. Say. There you go. So let's get into some of our newer DMARDs, our biologic DMARDs. Now, we've just talked about these recently because we did Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, some other things that we talked about, TNF-alpha, biologics. And luckily, the drugs are basically the same same ones. A lot of crossover. Um, So Humira is is a big one that is utilized. It's one I know like at our clinic that we use all the time. Um, It's it's relatively older compared to mm -hmm. the others, too. Um, plus, it's from, we have the 340B pricing, so we get we get Humira real cheap. Yep. Um, so that's fantastic for our patients because otherwise they would just be stuck with something they couldn't couldn't keep. You know, you, you couldn't afford, or it would just be on the much less effective medication. But um, as far as you know, Humira goes. We've talked about this a lot in the podcast, but we're basically administering subcutaneous injection every 14 days, um, and uh, usually do a loading dose, and then you start your um, your every 14 days a week after that loading dose. Um, it kind of changes a little bit depending on whether it's psoriasis or whatnot, but definitely double check your uh, your Lexicomp or your Pearls or one of those uh, apps. You see what I did there? Pearls. Nice. Sponsored the podcast. Shout out to Pearls. Thank you guys so much. I, I lump them with Lexicomp because they're an up and comer. I love them. Um, so they're, if you haven't checked out Pearls, by the way, www.pearls.com slash core consult rx. They just posted new asthma 2022 treatment algorithms as well as smoking cessation that are awesome looking. Check those out. You're gonna want to gonna want to get your hands on a copy. Um, so sign up today. Thanks, Pearls, for sponsoring. As always, appreciate you guys. Okay, so uh, Humira um, does have several biosimilars that are available now. So make sure that uh, the patient, you know, his insurance is, you know, doesn't have one in particular that they'll cover, and not others. You know, kind of like we're seeing issues with the insulin billing and stuff now. Um, that you know, we don't want a patient to not be able to get the medication just because of you know, insurance issues, stupid insurance issues. Yeah. Um, we do have to worry about some local injection site reactions. Um, you know, that's going to be the most common adverse effect. However, the, the citrate free formulation that they have now is definitely, um, eased up on some of that. Um, so that's helped, uh, quite a bit, but it's still a possibility, obviously with any injection. Yep. Um, yeah. So the next we have is Anbril. It's another anti-TNF biologic. Um, the generic is a Tannercept. So it's 50 milligrams. It's also a sub-Q injection once a week. Um, localized injection site reactions are common, but otherwise it's reasonably well tolerated. Rarely it can cause neurologic demyelinating syndromes. So that would be like a multiple sclerosis. Um, they have been associated with the use of it, but that is rare. Um, it, um, Per the trials, it seems to slow disease progression to a greater degree than oral methotrexate. Still, oral methotrexate is recommended first line. Um, and it does have a biosimilar branded as Arel-Z. They are not interchangeable per the purple book. FDA purple FDA book. FDA purple book. Yes. Tells you that biosimilars can be interchanged. Yes. Fun facts. We're, this episode has so many fun facts. Infliximab, Remicade. This is the IV infusion, TNF-alpha, um, and this is one that is 
given every eight weeks. So you get a little bit longer, um, you know, in between your infusions, but you do have to um, give infusions. So um, the concern with the IV infusion is that it can cause uh, the formation of antibodies um, in response to, you know, basically a foreign protein being administered. So, you know, one of the recommendations can be oral methotrexate um, given kind of concurrently for as long as the patient continues the infliximab. That somewhat conflicts a little bit with the guidelines because they do kind of tend to think more along the lines of monotherapy. I would say that this would, in this particular case, maybe be a better uh, case for this particular TNF-alpha inhibitor just because of that antibody um, uh, potential. And I guess uh, the guideline recommendation is more to start with monotherapy with methotrexate. But yeah, if you end up moving to this, you would still want to do methotrexate along with it. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And you can still go to combo... Yeah. Methotrexate biologic as a next step. Yeah. Either way. So um, the the loss of response though is uh, even if you've had an initial you know a good initial response, um, you know they they may try increased doses or shorter intervals between doses to kind of remain uh, maintain that response. But um, they, some patients may lose the effectiveness of the drug because of those uh, those antibodies that form. Um, acute infusion reactions can happen as well, uh, and so you know, the, the treatment can include slowing the infusion rate itself. Uh, also, in some cases, they'll administer Tylenol, diphenhydramine, um, maybe corticosteroids. I would say that that would be a big if, um, depending on the clinic protocol. But uh, um, if the patient does develop those, those um, infusion reactions, then that's when you might want to actually pull out the, the corticosteroids. But yeah. pre-treating, you, it just kind of depends on the, the clinic and how they're going to what their protocol is. Right. So that's infliximab. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a couple others. Symponi generic is galimumab. It's also a sub-Q injection, 50 milligrams once a month. Um, there's a, an IV injection as well, Symponi urea. Uh, it's 2 milligrams per kilogram infused over 30 minutes, and that happens at week 0, 4, and then it's just every 8 weeks after that. Uh, there's also Simzia, Sertilizumab Pegol, or Pegol. 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 Uh, it's a sub-Q injection, 400 milligrams at weeks 0, 2, and 4, and then 200 milligrams every other week. It does have an alternative dosing schedule of 400 milligrams every four weeks as well. It seems like a no-brainer. It does to me. It's going to go four every four weeks. Unless, I'd imagine it's a, it's a larger amount, so it might just side cause more side injections, effects, side yeah, reactions, yeah. side effects, yeah. Now, look who's thinking logical now. Cole's logical now. We're just two logical guys. You're like a pharmacist, dude, if I were to to put a a title on it. If you had to guess what what, what I was going to do with my life. Business guy. Yeah. Newspaper editor. Yeah. <laughs> Not farm beat. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> I would quit in three seconds. <laughs> um, so when we think of the class of, of TNF-alpha inhibitors altogether, um, the, the box warning that's associated with the class is because they do increase the risk of developing serious infections, some of which could be fatal, if, if especially if, if left untreated. Um, but demyelinating disease, like Cole had mentioned, seizures, uh, hepatitis B reactivation, even worsening heart heart failure, especially if patients who are already symptomatic with, with heart failure. Um, there's cases of hepatotoxicity. And, uh, it, you know, it's just one of those things that we ha- do have a lot of concerns with. So they are very effective, but we want to m- maximize the, the patient's um, 
kind of trial of methotrexate that's a little bit more safety, you know, a better safety profile before jumping to one of these. Plus the price also doesn't help either. Right. Um, but you do want to start, uh, before starting the, the, any of these TNF alpha inhibitors, make sure you get a TB test, um, as well as do an assessment for, um, hepatitis B and C, um, get a CBC LFTs at baseline, um, make sure all that stuff is, is documented before starting treatment. Cause you definitely don't want to miss a patient that has, even, uh, you know, kind of suppressed hep B uh, or hep yep. C. And we actually had a patient who just started on Humira, but we, and we started him on Epclusa for hep C at the same time, and we waited on the Humira so that we could get the Epclusa going just so that we don't worsen right. that. Nice. Because it can basically uh, increase the viral uh, replication. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, no. Hmm. They're, we're churning them out now. <laughs> That's what they. That's what we said. Um, yeah, that was what, the. Uh, you feel like you're technical on, term. Yeah, yeah. That's what we said on rounds, basically, <laughs> or in the office we were sitting in. Yeah, not so really say rounds. rounds. I say rounds just to make it sound like we're cool. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about some of the non TNF yeah. alpha biologics. So non TNF alpha. Non TNF. Miscellaneous biologics. Miscellaneous. We should call them that. I they're like still that. biologics. They're but still not, DMARDs. But they're non TNF alpha. But they don't act on TNF alpha. So and they're also not target. I guess they may. Yeah, they'd be targeted. That's a better name for targeted synthetic. Targeted synthetic biologics. Yeah, because these are that very don't specific. act on TNF alpha. <laughs> right, but not that target. But not that targeted. Different targets. Very confusing. So where do they target? So we have one Arencia, a beta sept. So it inhibits T cell activation. It binds to the CD80 and CD86 um, on antigen presenting cells. That probably sounds pretty familiar as far as the mechanism of action. Um, blocking the required CD28 interaction between the antigen-presenting cell and the T cell. Um, so where is it used? In patients who failed to achieve adequate responses to the TNF-alpha inhibitor, um, one-half had a clinical response to a beta-sept, for reference. So there's a trial called the AMPLE trial. It was a head-to-head trial. A beta-sept added to a stable methotrexate dose um, showed similar efficacy and adverse effects to Humira plus methotrexate in biologic naive patients with an inadequate response to methotrexate monotherapy. So they, they didn't do uh, well on methotrexate monotherapy, and so this was similar to um, uh, Humira plus methotrexate. So. This added to methotrexate was similar. Uh, it does have a variety of adverse effects, um, headache, nasopharyngitis, dizziness, cough, back pain, increases in blood pressure, dyspepsia, UTI, rash and extremity pain mm. so a fair amount of things a lot of things a lot of things um, we also have rituximab which is a med that depletes cd20 uh, b cells uh, and that's kind of how it's uh, thought to um, play a role in uh, ra development and progression um, this is actually uh, again kind of been shown to be useful in patients who have failed methotrexate or a tnf alpha inhibitor um, and it's given as two infusions a uh, thousand milligrams uh, two weeks apart um, they also will oftentimes give methylprednisolone um, 30 minutes prior to the rituximab uh, to reduce the, the incidence and severity of the infusion reactions that can occur. Um, and then methotrexate uh, should be given concurrently in the usual doses um, that you know for RA, uh, as the the combination is, has proved uh, to kind of. You know, provide that best therapeutic outcome in this case as well. Um, and then duration of benefit definitely is variable, you know, depending on the patient. Um, but the, it's not um, unlikely that the patient won't need another treatment if they have reactivation of the disease. Yep. So, um, Last one in this um, classification is Actemra. 
tocilizumab. It blocks interleukin receptors, specifically IL-6 receptors, and that's going to prevent the cytokine from interacting with them. Um, it's used in moderate to severe um, rheumatoid arthritis in patients who have failed one or more DMARDs. There was a trial called the ADACTA trial. Patients with severe RA, unable to use methotrexate, found monotherapy with Actimera more effective in symptom improvement than Humira monotherapy. So I guess that's a positive thing. Uh, I, I don't, I don't really. I mean, I see this. I've seen it used, but I don't know that it's used ahead of Humira. Yeah, not, I, not that I would, I'm aware of. Most, I feel like most insurance, because technically speaking, you could go either the TNF alpha route or the the other, you know, targeted therapies mm-hmm. but i feel like most of the insurance companies want to see tnf alpha first. tnf alpha first i think so it so. ends up becoming like a prior off issue yeah. yeah so they kind of force their hand right as they do as they do all right so our other class and i think just for time's sake we probably could lump these in together um i'm also not a huge fan of these either but not as uh, important the 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 janus kinase inhibitors um so zelgans was the the first one to kind of hit the hit the block and um just like it says it inhibits that specific end of the janus kinase enzymes um, which is going to kind of stimulate that immune cell function um they they've had several box warnings um, including serious infection risk tuberculosis fungal viral bacterial um and then even potentially increased risk of lymphomas. Um, one thing that's been added recently, and this is actually because of the rheumatoid, um, you know, there, its use in rheumatoid conditions, but major uh, adverse cardiovascular events um, has also been added, especially in patients who are 50 years of age or older with uh, one cardiovascular risk factor, um, their, their risk of having an event, a major event, um, so, you know, an MLI stroke, what have you, um, compared to TNF-alpha inhibitors was significantly higher. Um, and especially in patients who uh, were current or past smokers um, were even higher risk. So this is something that they are monitoring, um, but the, uh, there's, there's even now talk that it could potentially, um, this is based on post-marketing safety d- data, but um, it, there's some data now that shows that it could increase mortality risk too. Hmm. So lots of stuff that the FDA is kind of keeping their eye on. Uh, there are five you know, sort of box warnings that are, separate out um, for these this class of medication um, definitely one that we need to kind of keep an eye on and, yep. and monitor over time obviously not we I see that <laughs> I lump myself in with the FDA obviously <laughs> but uh, you know it, it will be you know as clinicians being watched to, to make sure that we're not just putting anybody on these and you know if they have some of these risk factors we got to be real careful right so yeah so they're not used as often but you will see them and so that's why you want to be aware of those things um, just to kind of uh, finish them up. There are a couple more. Zeljans is probably the most common one you've heard of. There's also Alumiant, Baricitinib. Mm-hmm. Um, it was approved in 2018. There is also Renvoke. I feel like I see this maybe just because it's newer. I, I, this one pops up a fair amount. Upadacitinib. It was approved in 2019. It's a capsule you take once a day. Um, there was a trial called the Select Beyond trial, which was Renvoke plus methotrexate versus Humira plus methotrexate. And the revoke group was superior in terms of improving signs and symptoms and physical function, but had higher rates of herpes zoster and um, creatinine phosphokinase elevations. And then, of course, it, it has the concerns r- related to JAK inhibitors that we have. Yeah. Um, there are some stipulations about starting them. Do not start if the absolute lymphocyte count is less than 500, hemoglobin is less than 8, ANC is less than 1,000. 
Mike mentioned various things we're concerned about, increased risk of malignancy, increased risk of thrombosis, and Mike mentioned the, the possible increased risk in mortality. So, yeah. So let's summarize all this, Cole. Let's do it. So the, one of the things that has kind of, uh, I guess, been around for a while was the concept of like double and triple therapy, specifically triple therapy with methotrexate, sulfasalazine, and hydroxychloroquine. So basically much cheaper combo therapy that you can give versus one of the very expensive biologics. Um, so they did a study um, that compared that triple therapy with uh, or versus an um, Enbrel plus methotrexate. And in that study, there was a non-inferior clinical benefit. Um, there's also another study that looked at the methotrexate, sulfasalazine, hydroxychloroquine versus infliximab plus methotrexate. Um, now in that study, infliximab, methotrexate did have more benefit as far as clinical outcomes, but the 12 month mark, but that had been, uh, kind of, that was washed away by the 24 month, uh, follow up. Um, and so it's kind of hard to tell whether that was from antibody formation from the infliximab or what, but, um, the guidelines still kind of do push maximizing the use of methotrexate monotherapy before going this route. Um, just because you're compounding the risk of those side effects and, um, you know, the, even the ones that have specific, you know, unique side effect profiles, like the, um, the retinopathy with the hydroxychloroquine, you're just adding that to the list of other potential toxicities, uh, with the other agents. So you gotta be careful with that. Um, uh, in some cases, if the patient, you know, only has certain options available, maybe you had, do have to go that route, but make sure that you've maximized that methotrexate monotherapy, um, first before starting to switch things around yeah um and if you do need to switch things around there's the various combination therapies like you mentioned um addition of a biologic dmard with methotrexate methotrexate if possible you'd probably go tnf alpha inhibitor then a non-tnf alpha biologic and then you might consider zeljans if you had to but and the guidelines do specifically mention Zildjian's because I don't think the other ones were too new for them to include. Yeah, I mean they were both there, but yeah, I guess they, they just didn't just, really mention them. Right. Um, but so yeah. they they do give some specific situations. So for example, if they say if a patient has moderate to, to high disease activity, we're trying to push them to low activity, and let's say that they still have that moderate to high disease activity despite being on uh, a single TNF alpha inhibitor, so monotherapy with Humira, let's say. Um, they recommend either adding uh, methotrexate to that if they're not currently on a, a DMARD, um, like a conventional DMARD. And then if you do consider switching them, they want you to switch to a non-TNF-alpha biologic over switching to another TNF-alpha inhibitor in the same class. Like, so in, basically in the same class. Um, they do prefer the, the non-TNF-alpha biologic, and they also prefer that over Zelgens as well. So kind of like Cole said, they save that for after you've tried some of the other classes. Um, another example situation that they give is if patients have moderate to high disease activity despite um, two or more sequential TNF alpha inhibitors. At that point, they're like, okay, we really need to cut our losses, non TNF biologic. Um, and they say to do that over switching to Zelgens or yet another TNF alpha inhibitor. Hopefully, by that point, you get the, you get the hint. Right. But, um, you know, some of the other cases where we use those TNF alpha inhibitors, sometimes they encourage you to try one. You know, if one doesn't work, try the other. But this right. is, you know, they, they kind of want you to change it up at this point. Kind of separately, if you did one or more TNF inhibitor and then one or more or at least one non-TNF biologic, then they would want you to do try a different non-TNF biologic over using Zelljans. Yeah. And they would really only want you to consider Zelljans 
after a second non-TNF biologic. Yeah. It's a pretty last line. Yeah. Um, and it, if you get a patient to remission, don't discontinue their RA therapies. It's reasonable to consider um, de-escalating, but you would want to taper the therapy and pause or adjust based on uh, recurrent symptoms. Yep. Um, there's also, if you check out the guidelines, we probably don't have time to go through it now, but there's also several comorbidities that they list, including you know latent or active TB, pregnant or breastfeeding, patients with heart failure, um, certain melanomas, uh, lymphoproliferative disorders, uh, hep C, uh, hep B infections, previous serious infections, and they give very specific guidance on which agents to choose and which comorbidity so if you haven't done that definitely check out the american college of rheumatology guidelines from 2021 and they have it all listed for your learning pleasure it's all there yes it is guaranteed or well you're, you're not paying anything for this so your money back <laughs> <laughs> um anything else cole i think we covered think it all i think we're about out of time we we're getting close date. everybody's up to date now <laughs> yep but this is not up to date yeah we need a new guideline i know to include all the drugs. We'll need. Uh, There's a lot of things in the pipeline too. Four so. more years yeah. before they'll update it again. We'll just update it for them. We could. <laughs> think they think they accept? Like, who are you? Idiots? They pay us. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Think those could guys you do that for how? free? I'm sure they don't, right? No. There's no way. You think you write that? That guideline would take so long to write. What kind of cash they make? I would say they're they're pretty high level guys. I feel like they're making some bank. I would think so. I feel like they're driving nice cars <laughs> to the office <laughs> every day. So. But anyways, um, make sure you guys, again, uh, if, once you've listened to the podcast, kind of mull it over, obviously, ponder what you think about what we said. Go take that post-activity test. And if you're like, well, I can't take it because I'm not a free CE member, what are you doing? Go become a member. Let's get it going. They're supporting us. They've kept partnering with us. Um, definitely uh, you know, check them out. They are, are very good. We've actually, I've, I've personally used them for years even before they ever approached me. So it's kind of uh, cool to be working with them now. But um, check out their, their websites. They got a lot of good, good content on there. Um, again, there's a discount code in the show notes. So make sure you snag that if you're thinking about getting a membership. Uh, if you have any comments, questions, uh, gripes, you want to reach Cole or myself, you can reach us in the show notes. Um, the emails will be there. Or we can reach us on any of the social media platforms. Um, do our best to, to respond. Um, thank you again to Pearls, as always. Um, he's been a fantastic uh, support to the podcast. Um, and uh, if you want more like traditional lecture style content, then check out the, the Patreon account. Um, we have lots and lots and lots of lectures on there, all various disease states and stuff's getting posted all the time. Um, but that's uh, www.patreon.com slash coreconsultrx. And uh, hundreds of PowerPoint slides on there. You could, you'll have a whole library instantly. You could teach a class basically without doing any work. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend that. I think you should probably learn it. But um, there you go. We will see you guys in the next one. Thank you so much. Bye.